Good afternoon. Thank you all for joining us uh, for today's Capitol Hill briefing titled, Is Obamacare Now Optional? New Rule Expands Consumer Protections in Short-Term Health Plans. My name is Jeff Vanderslice, and I am a Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute, a public policy research organization dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Today, we'll be discussing the recent reversal of an Obama-era rule that placed significant restrictions on the availability of short-term health insurance plans. Uh, joining us to discuss this important topic are uh, Michael Cannon, whose uh, public comments, I'm told, uh, to the administration were cited in the new rule we're discussing, um, and Christopher Pope of the Manhattan Institute. Dr. Pope is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute where he specializes in issues related to the Affordable Care Act, Medicare and Medicaid, and entitlement reform. Uh, prior to joining the Manhattan Institute, Dr. Pope was the Director of Policy Research at West Health. Uh, he was a Health Policy Fellow with the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and he also served as a Research Manager at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Pope earned a bachelor's degree in government and economics from the London School of Economics and both an MA and PhD in political science from Washington University in St. Louis. Michael Cannon is the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. He is a co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, and he is a co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back, Healthcare, and How to Free It. Michael holds a bachelor's degree in American government from the University of Virginia and an MA in economics and a JM in law and economics from the George Mason University. Uh, we'll now turn to their remarks, uh, which will be followed, of course, with plenty of time for uh, questions and discussion. Uh, so with that, I'll turn things over to Michael. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I want to thank uh, Chris Pope for coming to uh, uh, speak with us about, about this important issue today, and I want to thank all of you for coming as well. Uh, we're here to talk about a change that the uh, federal government has made in how it implements federal health insurance laws and regulations. And this is a change that uh, hasn't really received the attention it deserves because it really is uh, uh, a bit revolutionary. It's a huge victory for those who are fighting uh, for better and more affordable, more secure uh, health care. It's a huge victory for those who want and have been trying to provide relief from, uh, to consumers from Obamacare. And on that score, it's really a more significant step than anything Congress or the president have done so far. Uh, it's a more significant step than Congress's reveal, repeal of the individual mandate penalty, for example, which uh, lists at the end of 2019. And it's a change that could alter the political dynamics of this issue of healthcare reform in a way that makes, uh, leads to more innovations that make health insurance and healthcare, uh, access to medical care, better and more affordable and more secure. So what I want to talk about are uh, really three things. First, about how this change has basically made Obamacare optional. Uh, you can still enroll in Obamacare if you want. It'll still be there. But people who don't want to enroll in Obamacare don't have to abide by, uh, don't have to purchase all the unwanted coverage that Obamacare requires consumers to purchase, or they don't have to pay all of the hidden taxes that Obamacare uh, requires uh, 
so many purchasers of uh, Obamacare plans to pay. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, because what we're talking about is uh, short-term health insurance, I, I want, I'm going to explain why this change allows these short-term health insurance plans to offer what is really long-term protection against the cost of illness. Uh, and finally, I'm going to address some criticisms of short-term health insurance plans and, uh, and this rule. So to begin with, uh, Obamacare is now optional. Essentially, we now have in health insurance, at least from the federal perspective, a free market, free from almost all federal regulation. And as a result of the fact that now in this market they're going to be, and this is a market that will exist alongside of the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare exchanges. Uh, as a result of, uh, of this change, uh, the, the final agency rulemaking that uh, the federal government issued, there is, we have a market where there are essentially no federal mandates to buy coverage you don't want. There are no, no hidden taxes. The premiums for plan, health plans in the short-term market are going to be 50% lower, maybe 70% lower than the uh, premiums uh, for Obamacare plans, and this change will even make it possible for people to purchase health insurance protection for as much as 90% less than the cost of an Obamacare plan. Uh, it's going to reduce premiums for uh, millions of people in the exchanges, millions of people who are uh, waiting out the exchanges who are currently uninsured because uh, they find exchange coverage to be too expensive, and uh, potentially reduce premiums and make health insurance more secure for more than 100 million Americans who are currently enrolled in employer-sponsored plans. In addition, this change is going to, uh, is going to protect conscience rights uh, in, a, in a way that goes farther than the administration has already or the Supreme Court has done. Because as you recall, among the types of coverage that Obamacare requires health insurance purchasers to buy is coverage for all FDA-approved forms of contraception. A lot of people have an objection to that. They believe that some of those forms of contraception are immoral, and the federal government is requiring the, them to purchase uh, items that violate their uh, conscience, their moral principles. With this change in how the federal go government uh, 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 addresses the short-term health insurance market, those consumers will be able to buy, again, uh, long-term uh, health insurance protection without having to buy items that might violate their conscience. Uh, these plans will be able to offer broader networks than, uh, than Obamacare plans, and uh, when it comes to health insurance quality, are going to uh, encourage a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom. Along the way, these plans uh, or, or this rule change is going to in reduce the, the number of Americans without health insurance. Estimates vary, but the Urban Institute, which is a left-leaning organization and actually an opponent of this change, even they estimate that this rule, uh, this rule change could reduce the number of uninsured by uh, 2 million, uh, while uh, up to 4 million people could enroll in these uh, uh, new enhanced short-term plans. And along the way, uh, uh, these plans are going to make Obamacare more transparent. Uh, Obamacare's costs more transparent, uh, and I'll have more to say about that in a little while. But how does all how did all of this happen? How did all of this come to be? Well, what the uh, what the federal government realized is that in federal law, uh, there's a provision that it predates Obamacare that exempts 
short-term plans from federal health insurance regulation. And what the federal government realized was that this provision, this exemption from federal health insurance regulation was actually, the way Congress wrote it, was much broader than anyone had previously realized. Uh, so Obamacare requires consumers uh, to purchase specific types of coverage. It imposes, uh, as I mentioned, hidden taxes on consumers and uh, uh, imposes uh, uh, Obamacare as well as um, uh, federal law that predates Obamacare imposes all sorts of uh, regulations on health insurance. But, uh, and when Congress added those provisions, when Congress added those provisions to federal law, uh, it added them to an already existing part of federal law called the Public Health Service Act. Great, thank you. Uh, called the Public Health Service Act. Okay, so the Public Health Service Act, uh, here, here's a, a provision, uh, the, the, the very first provision in the Affordable Care Act. You can see that it, it adds uh, Obamacare's rules as amendments to the Public Health Service Act. The Public Health Service Act regulates health insurance, which it defines as a contract or policy that provides, quote, benefits consisting of medical care. Uh, this is going to become very significant later. And uh, ever, as I mentioned, ever since 1996, Congress has exempted short-term limited duration insurance from all the regulations that the Public Health Service Act uh, imposes on health insurance coverage. And when Congress uh, added Obamacare's requirements to the Public Health Service Act, it left this exemption in place. It left in place the exemption for short-term limited duration insurance. And as a result, when all of those Obamacare regulations started increasing premiums for millions of consumers, um, a lot of those consumers ended up buying insurance uh, in the short-term market. Now, there were some rules that the federal government imposed on short-term, what we call short-term limited duration insurance plans. Uh, the federal government said that these plans can last no more than 12 months, but that was basically it. States posed some additional regulations and restrictions on these plans, as we'll discuss later, but uh, you had something resembling a free market in at least short-term uh, uh, short plans. Now, then in 1996, the Obama administration made a change in the, how the federal government addresses these plans. Since the premiums for short-term plans were, about, were often 70% less than Obamacare premiums, a lot of people, uh, generally healthy people, uh, sought refuge from those high Obamacare premiums by buying short-term plans. They lasted 12 months. That would, uh, uh, if you bought one of these plans... You would have health insurance coverage until the next Obamacare open enrollment period. And so a lot of people saw this as an attractive alternative to paying very high Obamacare premiums. So the Obama administration restricted uh, the maximum term of short-term plans uh, to three months. It took it from 12 months down to three months. They also uh, uh, banned something called renewal guarantees. A renewal guarantee, and this is going to become very important later, a renewal guarantee is a guarantee from an insurance company that your premiums won't go up because you got sick. Your premiums might go up for other reasons, but if you have a renewal guarantee, the fact that you got cancer will not cause your premiums to go up. Even if you get cancer, you will still pay healthy person premiums. And insurance companies have been offering these renewal guarantees in the individual market for decades. They stopped doing so uh, when, uh, when Obamacare was passed because Obamacare essentially banned them. But they charge a little more for this protection and what it means, and the economic literature is fairly unanimous that these renewal guarantees worked 
pretty well, what it means is that even if you get a very expensive illness, you can still pay healthy person premiums. So uh, when the Obama administration uh, shortened the maximum term of short-term plans from 12 months to three months and banned renewal guarantees in these plans, uh, that had the effect of exposing a lot of people in the short-term market who got sick to medical underwriting. Short, because short-term plans are not subject to Obamacare's pre-existing conditions provisions, uh, sellers in this market do underwrite their applicants. At enrollment, uh, they ask you questions about your medical history. They may uh, charge you a higher premium if you have a pre-existing condition. They may exclude that condition from coverage, or they may not issue you coverage at all. And uh, when the Obama administration shortened the maximum term of these short-term plans to three months, that meant that not only did consumers have to re-enroll every three months instead of uh, re-enrolling every 12 months, not only did consumers' deductibles reset after three months instead of uh, after 12 months, but if you got an expensive condition, if you bought a short-term plan, say, in January, got an expensive, uh, developed an expensive condition in February, this meant at the end of March you would lose your coverage and then you may not be able to get coverage at all until January 1st of the next year uh, when Obamacare allowed you to enroll uh, in an Obamacare plan again. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which is the, uh, the, the body that represents or the, the lobbying group that represents state insurance commissioners, complained to the Obama administration. You are going to be subjecting a lot of sick people to medical underwriting and higher premiums and lost coverage by shortening the, uh, the term length of, uh, of short-term plans. In essence, what the Obama administration did is the opposite of what Congress has been trying to do for decades. Every time it addresses health insurance, it exposed more people, more sick people to medical underwriting. And it did so for a very clear reason. It did not want healthy people going into short-term plans. It wanted, to, it wanted them to enroll in Obamacare plans where they would bring down the average risk in those pools, they would bring down those premiums, and they would have to pay inflated health insurance premiums. Uh, so the, what the Obama administration did was it made short-term plans less attractive by subjecting sick people to medical underwriting as a means of forcing healthy people out of that market and into the Obamacare market. So uh, that's what that happened in 1996. And after the Obama administration did that, enrollment in short-term plans fell. But then uh, 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 the federal government this year, actually beginning last year, began to take another look at, uh, at short-term plans. And they realized the statutory exemption for short-term limited duration insurance is much larger than anyone realized. And they worked within the law to provide as much flexibility as possible to people in this market. And significantly, um, uh, and so what did they do? They, they, they made a couple of changes, uh, or a few changes. First, they lengthened the term of uh, uh, short-term limited, the, the maximum allowable term of a short-term limited duration insurance contract from three months back to 12 months. In addition, they said that is the initial term, but the duration can be longer. They looked at other uh, parts of federal law, uh, saw that Congress generally has let people extend certain types of insurance for 36 months and said that a short-term plan must have an initial term of less than 12 months, but insurers can extend that, uh, that term as long as, uh, for, for as long as 36 months. So all of a sudden, uh, these plans have become much more flexible. But perhaps the most significant thing 
that uh, the, uh, the federal government did was it said that short-term plans uh, or, or it said that uh, it, it was not, not going to ban renewal guarantees in this market. In fact, the federal government said that it doesn't have the authority to uh, regulate renewal guarantees at all, much less to ban them as the Obama administration did. If you go back to this definition of health insurance coverage that I mentioned before, you'll notice that when the Public Health Service Act gives the Department of Health and Human Services the authority to regulate health insurance, it only gives the department the authority to regulate contracts or policies that provide benefits consisting of medical care. A renewal guarantee is not a health insurance contract as defined by the Public Health Service Act. It, in, yes, it is insurance, but it insures against a different risk than health insurance coverage does, and it provides a different benefit. It, uh, it insures against not the risk that you're going to need medical care, but the risk that a change in your health status, like a cancer diagnosis, will increase an actuarially fair premium for you and cause your premiums to rise. And the benefits that a renewal guarantee provides are not benefits consisting of medical care. They are benefits consisting of lower premiums. So what HHS said was, uh, we, uh, we don't have the authority to regulate these plans. They said that we are, uh, I think, significantly limited in our ability to regulate anything that is not health insurance coverage. And they drew a line between health insurance coverage and these renewal guarantees. Uh, implicitly along the way, I think, saying that the Obama administration had no authority uh, to, to uh, regulate much less ban renewal guarantees in this market. So what this means is that whereas uh, the Obama administration restricted consumer protections in short-term plans by exposing people in that market who got sick to medical underwriting, what the federal government has now done, what the Department of Health and Human Services has now done, is they have not only restored the consumer protections that the Obama administration eliminated, it has expanded those consumer protections by, by allowing this market to protect people who get sick from medical underwriting, not just after three months and not just after 12 months and not just uh, for up to 36 months. But what HHS uh, said in this rulemaking was that if a consumer purchases a standalone renewal guarantee that protects them from uh, being underwritten when they purchase a short-term limited duration insurance plan then they can string together as many consecutive short-term plans as they like. They can last, each one can last 12 months or 36 months or what have you, and that this market can actually provide long-term protection against the cost of illness, uh, working entirely within federal law. Because again, the federal government does not have the authority to ban insurers from offering that type of protection in this market. So, and this is an effect of the rule that I think most uh, health policy analysts and reporters don't get. They don't understand renewal guarantees. They haven't been part of uh, the conversation uh, uh, about, about health care reform. But uh, the market for renewal guarantees was sufficiently developed that, uh, uh, so suffi uh, sufficiently developed before Obamacare that, well, back in 1996, when Congress imposed a renewal guarantee requirement or a guaranteed renewability requirement on individual market products that are health insurance coverage, 75% of the individual market was already guaranteed renewable. It already offered protection to uh, people who got sick against their premiums going up as a result. Uh, and the market had developed so much that 
In 2008, United Health, the largest health insurance company in the country, began offering renewal guarantees as a standalone product. What would happen is you would go to United Health and they would uh, underwrite you. They would cite you a premium for some health plan they were offering, and they could say you could either pay that premium right now, maybe it's a $5,000 premium, or for one fifth of the cost of that premium, you can buy the option to enroll in that plan whenever you want, no matter how sick you get in the meantime. Your premiums will reflect your current health status, not your health status at the time of enrollment. If you think about this, this reduced the cost of health insurance protection by 80%. So you could get what is arguably the most important part of health insurance protection uh, and not have to pay $5,000 for it, but only pay $1,000 for it. Um, and again, this is what... Uh, 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 this is a New York Times article that describes this policy. Uh, HHS cited this New York Times article in their final rule when they were talking about how these standalone renewal guarantees work uh, and uh, how they reduce premiums by, uh, they cost 20% of the cost of an underlying health plan and how HHS really doesn't have the authority uh, to regulate renewal guarantees at all. And again, this is to how you can string together this uh, uh, consecutive short-term plans in order to provide long-term coverage. Uh, on the question of, because so, so many people are unaware of what renewal guarantees are, the, the question arises, well, do they really work? Well, some research has been done on this. This is a, a, a chart from a, a, a study that was published in the Health Policy Journal Health Affairs. It looked at the pre-Obamacare individual market and compared it to small employer insurance and large uh, employer insurance plans. And what this study asked was, how secure are these different types of coverage? They looked at people uh, with different uh, uh, health status who had, who had varying uh, 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 actuarial risk, and they asked, what is uh, the likelihood that these people will be uninsured one year uh, after you know, we initially look at them? And what they found was that in the individual market, uh, generally from 20 to 25% of people in the individual market would end up uninsured in the next year. That's not much of a concern when we're talking about healthy people. Uh, they found it probably found it pretty easy to get coverage afterward. Uh, with uh, people in poor health, that's more of a concern. But what's really interesting is what happens in the employer market, okay? If you look at the gray bars, that's large employers. And as health status gets worse, employer coverage, large employer coverage gets less and less secure to the point where if, you're, if your health status is poor, you are basically uh, as, as uh, well off in the individual market as you are in the large employer market. But if you look at the small employer market, not only does the security of that coverage uh, uh, of small employer health benefits uh, get worse and worse the sicker you get, but... Uh, it, you're uh, about twice as likely to end up uninsured if, you have cover if you're in poor health and you have coverage through a small employer compared to if you're in poor health and have coverage through the individual market or had coverage through the individual market prior to Obamacare, and that is because of renewal guarantees. And uh, the innovations that this rule makes available will really uh, uh, make this kind of coverage much more affordable. Uh, so affordable that... Even people who have employer-sponsored coverage, might, would, a lot of people would be able to purchase a, a standalone renewal guarantee that would protect them from underwriting in the individual market if they get sick and can't work anymore, or if they get sick and then uh, their spouse, who's their connection to health insurance, 
uh, through the spouse's job dies, or if they divorce, or if a child uh, reaches age 18 or 26 or whatever, and they have to leave their parents' plan. A standalone renewal guarantee can protect all of these groups uh, of, of people from being re, uh, underwritten in the individual market and therefore provide more secure access to coverage than, uh, than they have right now. Um, now, that is, of course, if states will let them do it, okay? Uh, as I mentioned, the federal government really doesn't regulate short-term plans at all. Uh, states impose uh, some, uh, in some states, significant regulations on these plans. This is a table from a paper by the Commonwealth Fund. They looked at about 10 states uh, and uh, surveyed them to see what kind of restrictions they impose on these plans. Uh, you'll see that in some states like Alaska, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Mississippi, there are going to be no, there are no restrictions on these plans. So, the federal, so, so this new federal rule means that uh, 60 days after it's published in the Federal Register, consumers, uh, insurers in those states will be able to offer uh, these consecutive short-term plans uh, uh, held together with a renewal guarantee that protects the enrollees from being re-underwritten after initial enrollment, that protects them against their premiums going up because they got sick. In other states, not so clear. In, uh, well, in some states, they won't be able to do that. New Jersey just bans short-term plans. Uh, but in some states, it's, it's a little less clear. Uh, Arizona, for example, um, limits the length of short-term plans to 185 days and says they can't be renewed for uh, longer than 180 days, okay? So that would seem to limit short-term plans in Arizona to, uh, to, just, you know, one, one, uh, to just one year. However, if you look at the statute that Arizona uses to regulate health insurance, you'll find the same feature that we find in the federal statute, which is Arizona law defines health insurance coverage as a healthcare plan or arrangement that pays for or furnishes medical care uh, medical or health services. And what that means is that the governor of Arizona or the Department of Insurance or uh, what have you can do the same thing that HHS did at the federal level. They can say, you know what? We have the authority to regulate healthcare plans or arrangements that pay for or furnish medical services, but we have no authority to regulate renewal guarantees. So even though Arizona law limits short-term plans to less than one year, there's nothing in Arizona law prohibiting uh, insurers and consumers from stringing together their multiple consecutive short-term plans and protecting the consumer from re-underwriting with, uh, with a renewal guarantee. Um, uh, Minnesota, uh, going back to, uh, to this uh, uh, table, Minnesota imposes, or I should say Michigan, uh, it's a little less clear whether Michigan would be able to do that by administrative action uh, if it can, uh, like Arizona, then that, that's a lot easier than, uh, than, than getting a law through the legislature. Uh, Minnesota would require uh, a statute to be passed because Minnesota law prohibits short-term plans from covering pre-existing conditions, quote, that originated during a previous identical policy or contract with the same health carrier, uh, where coverage was continuous between the previous and the current policy or contract. Think about that. Think about what I just said. Minnesota law literally prohibits these plans from covering pre-existing conditions. The whole purpose of health reform that everyone on both sides of the ideological divide have been trying to do is make health care more secure for people who are sick. And there's a provision in Minnesota law that literally prohibits these plans from doing that, which is a little curious, I think. Uh, a little bit like the Obama rule in that way. So uh, now, there are 
um, any number of criticisms that people have made about short-term plans and this rule expanding short-term plans. Uh, one of them is that short-term health insurance plans are junk. Okay. Now, certainly, if you look at some of the plans that have been uh, issued in the uh, short-term market, especially since the 2006 Obama rule, uh, you might call some of them junk. I mean, a plan that kicks you off after three months with no protection against re-underwriting, that's kind of junky. But that was a result of the Obama rule. Okay. These plans also uh, will sometimes uh, offer severe limitations on coverage, but we shouldn't look at the short-term market as it exists now if we want to know what these plans will look like under the rule that the federal government just issued. Uh, if uh, you look at a, CB, the, a report the CBO put out uh, not too long ago, uh, after, the, uh, 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 after HHS issued its proposed rule to change how it addresses short-term plans, what CBO said was if the proposed regulation is finalized, and it was, uh, a small, only a small percentage of the plans offered in the current S, uh, short-term market would resemble, uh, only a small percentage of the plans offered in the short-term market would resemble what's on the market now. Uh, CBO, they expect that insurers would offer new types of short-term products that resemble the individual market coverage that was available prior to Obamacare. So more comprehensive coverage, but as comprehensive as Obamacare, probably not, uh, but what does that tell us? It tells us that when consumers are spending their own money on health insurance, they don't value the the uh, a lot of the coverage that Obamacare requires them to buy. They don't value it as much as the cost, and so they will do a much better job of striking a balance between too much insurance and too little insurance. And if we want to talk about junk plans, let's keep in mind uh, that things are not exactly rosy in the Obamacare market. This is a chart that was put uh, out by the Kaiser Family Foundation. They found that from 2017 to 2018, a net 2 million people left the Obamacare market. Enrollment in Obamacare plans fell by a net 2 million people. Why did uh, uh, enrollment fall? Well, it turns out that Obamacare plans have their own um, junk insurance problems. Uh, in 2015, the New York Times reported that sky-high deductibles that are leaving some newly, uh, sky high deductibles are leaving some newly insured uh, people feeling nearly as vulnerable as they were before they had coverage. Uh, those are under Obamacare uh, uh, plans and the cost sharing for, uh, in the Obamacare market um, has increased. Uh, premiums in the Obamacare market doubled over Obamacare's first four years, an average annual increase of 19%. In uh, 2018, the average premium for benchmark plans available to 27-year-old enrollees increased a record 37%. And these increases uh, compound. They don't go away if, say, in 2019, premiums only rise by 10%. Those premium increases are still there, still making Obamacare expensive. But probably the worst part of, uh, about Obamacare is the, is the quality of coverage. Uh, I think that the, uh, the, the cost-sharing uh, aspect that I mentioned bears on this. Uh, and if you, uh, p uh, if you look, at, look into this, you'll find that no Obamacare plans cover care at either MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston uh, or the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota or Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Uh, MD Anderson accepts Medicaid, but it does not accept Obamacare. And, uh, and, it, and this has a real impact on enrollees in Obamacare plans. When four-year-old Virginia resident Colette Briggs uh, developed an aggressive form of leukemia, her father had to switch jobs. 
He had, uh, he had to, well, not so much switch jobs. He had to switch from his Obamacare plan to an employer-based plan, which effectively many had to switch jobs, because no Obamacare plans cover the one local hospital that provides a special chemotherapy that Colette Briggs needs. Network adequacy issues matter under Obamacare because if your provider is out of network, there are no limits on cost sharing in Obamacare. Uh, and uh, studies show that Obamacare's pre-existing conditions provisions are eroding coverage uh, for the sick and that erosion in coverage is probably going to get worse uh, because most of the measures that Obamacare created to prevent that from happening have disappeared and are, don't look like they're coming back. And this is why consumers are fleeing the market. And these quality concerns are actually really significant. I mean, if you, uh, we've done polling at Cato where we have asked people, would you still support Obamacare's pre-existing conditions provisions if it led to an erosion in the quality of coverage? And not only does two-to-one support flip to two-to-one opposition when you ask people that question, but su support flips to opposition even among Democrats. Democrats start out 82 to 16% in favor of Obamacare's pre-existing conditions provisions. But if those provisions lower the quality of, uh, of care, then a whopping 40% of Democrats turn against those provisions. Uh, uh, finally, just one, one more criticism of Obamacare plans uh, of the, of the short-term market, and then I'll wrap up. Uh, one, it, 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 the, the other main criticism we hear is that uh, allowing uh, cons healthy consumers to enroll in short-term plans and making that more attractive is going to hurt Obamacare's risk pools. It's going to cause premiums in the Obamacare market to rise. This is another example, I think, of reporters and analysts not understanding renewal guarantees. Okay, if healthy people uh, do leave the Obamacare market, if there are any of them left in the Obamacare market, and they leave that market for the short-term market, yes, the, the uh, risk pools in Obamacare uh, will get sicker, and the premiums will rise, and federal subsidies uh, to insurers in that market will rise as a result. Um, uh, what that actually means is that uh, the cost of Obamacare coverage is going to become more transparent. The premiums are going to rise to reflect more of the cost of providing coverage to the people that Obamacare wanted to cover, and more of that cost will appear in the federal budget. So it's interesting to me that critics of the short-term plans rule, supporters of Obamacare, are calling this sabotage. Uh, it's interesting when people refer to transparency as sabotage. It makes you question question their plans. Um, but more important than that is, even though the lower premiums may lure healthy people out of the Obamacare exchanges into the short-term plans market, those healthy people are not going to stay healthy. Not all of them, um, probably not any of them. Uh, and when they do develop an expensive illness, renewal guarantees will prevent their premiums from going up to reflect that illness, which means that they will stay in the short-term market. They will, so renewal guarantees will keep sick people out of the Obamacare pools, and that will improve the Obamacare pools. Uh, but if, if the net effect is that premiums will rise in the Obamacare market, as I mentioned, uh, th that's, not, um, uh, that's not a problem. That's government transparency, and I think that that's a good thing. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, I look forward to hearing Chris's comments and taking your questions. Thanks. Thank you to everyone at Cato for inviting me uh, to share a few thoughts on this issue today. Uh, I completely agree with Michael. I think everyone's a little bit underestimated the significance of this change and the impact and benefit it's really going to generate for 
people who are needing health insurance, both sick and healthy across the country. Um, I think it's best to sort of think about this issue by kind of going back to the whole issue of where did Obamacare come from? Um, the issue, I, I think, as Michael said, was, was really at the core of this is a real genuine problem of uninsurable individuals with pre-existing conditions who either left their job or didn't previously have coverage and were unable to access it on the individual market. There was a real serious problem. But it's been exaggerated to sell the Affordable Care Act, and because it was exaggerated as a problem, it means that the solution that was designed for it was a poorly focused and poorly targeted and poorly designed one. You can imagine a well-targeted subsidy at this group of individuals who had pre-existing conditions. We know how to do entitlements. We know how to give money to people. And in many ways, that's kind of what the exchanges do. They provide subsidies that cap people's out-of-pocket costs as a, as a share of their income. But what we also did in the Affordable Care Act is we sort of used a broader definition of pre-existing conditions, not just people who were uninsurable, but people who had a pre-existing condition. So in such a way that it, encompasses, it allows people to wait until they get sick before they purchase insurance. Now, that's, that's not really going to be a, a successful health insurance market. And certainly if you allow people to wait till they get sick and purchase insurance at the same price as the healthy, you're going to find that the healthy don't get a really good deal out of that and that you only have sick people enrolled. This is the core problem of the Affordable Care Act. And it's what's essentially left us with a market where insurers don't want to sell plans to the people that want to buy it. Insurers are trying to avoid sick people and healthy people are trying to avoid the insurers. It's a completely dysfunctional and it's entirely the product of the Affordable Care Act. Um, th th this approach, I think, I, 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 as, a, as a matter of principle, I think the, the subsidies as, as such do, do much good and they, they function well by themselves. But the idea of supplementing the subsidies or in, in, to a large extent displacing the subsidies through a regulatory um, taxation on healthy people, forcing healthy people to buy overpriced insurance to, to cross-subsidize people who wait until they get sick before they purchase insurance, it's just a lunatic system that's, that's essentially uh, given us the chaos in insurance markets that we've seen over the past four or five years. Um, I think at the end of the day, the, the, the core question here is, do we want finance of the exchanges through honest, honestly appropriated subsidies and uh, subsidies written into entitlement law and permanent appropriations, or do we want to have an unstable sort of financial arrangement based on herding cats, trying to force people to buy plans that are just atrocious value for them? Um, if you actually look at the median healthcare expenditure of adults who are under the age of 65 in the United States, it's $700. That's $700, all healthcare expenditures out of pocket, basically all hospitals, all hospital visits, all physician visits, all drugs, everything. The median is $700. Now, the average plan on the Affordable Care Act exchange has a premium of $4,700 and a deductible that's also thousands and thousands of dollars. That, that's not even bad value. It's like beyond that. It's, I mean, there's a reason people are, f are fleeing these plans. And so the, the, the sort of cat herding finance as a way of, of supporting the exchanges has, has really just not worked. And the notion that this is why we need to ban affordable plans outside the exchanges, um, this, this is it's, it's just doubling down really on a failed strategy that's had a lot of collateral damage. Um, if you think about who is on the individual market, well, the, the people are actually on the individual market for a fairly short term anyway. 
Most people are covered by employer-sponsored insurance. Most people go from one job to another and use the individual market to bridge gaps between jobs. So there, there's a sense in which people cycle through the individual market. It's, it's, not, it's not a long-term thing. Um, and so it's inherently a bit of a short-term market for people to be on. Um, if you uh, think about what's happened on, on the, over the past, um, if you think about what happens if you say that insurance has to be priced the same for people who are healthy and people who are sick, well, when an insurer is setting its prices, it doesn't know how many healthy people and how many sick people it's going to have enroll in that year. So if it sets its premium like high, higher than the amount of, of health, the ratio of healthy to sick people, well, the premiums could be grossly inflated. Uh, the profits could be grossly inflated. But if it sets the premiums below the ratio, the appropriate ratio of healthy to sick people, it can quickly find itself bankrupt or certainly losing an enormous amount of funds. I think a great illustration of this has been what's happened in Tennessee. Uh, so what happened in Tennessee is the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee was very aggressive with its pricing the first year, but just completely overestimated the amount of healthy, to, uh, of sick, healthy people relative to sick people on the exchange. And so his prices were far, far too low. What happened is it drove out all the other insurers uh, from the marketplace. Humana fled, United fled. Um, I, I think after two, three years, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield was the only insurer in, in Tennessee. Now, the, the Affordable Care architects have tried to exchange, uh, excuse this by saying, oh, that, that wasn't the fault of a bad design of the Affordable Care Act. It was the fault of the Farm Bureau plans in Tennessee. And when you actually sort of look, which were exempt from the Affordable Care Act's rules, when you look at the Farm Bureau plans, which are in some way similar to the short-term plans, um, which are exempt from ACA rules, 0.3% of Tennessee's population is in the Farm Bureau plans. It's not really a serious, um, it's not really a serious explanation of what's been going on. Um, what's been going on is that the Affordable Care Act has essentially um, established through its kind of cat herding financial system. Uh, it's, it's desire to force people to pay for plans that are ridiculous value for them. It's basically created a chronically unstable financial uh, pipeline for itself. And this is one that essentially year on year requires extra subsidies, extra reinsurance. We're, f we're like in the fifth year coming up um, after the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and we're still dealing with these challenges. These challenges aren't the on the creation or the, the consequence of the Trump administration sabotage, they're just a design feature of the Affordable Care Act. Um, I think one of the other big problems of this has really essentially been the fact that if you're trying to herd everybody into plans that are terrible value for them, well, you have to pretty much ban all, all ways in which low risk people can seg can be distinguished from high risk people. You've got to prevent plans from appealing to low risk people. You've got to prevent plans that are better suited to the chronically ill, maybe with disease management. You don't really want to be on balance. Everybody has to be in the same kind of plan. And you really don't want to allow even subtle ways of marketing to relatively healthier people. So what the, these rules essentially have done is it's led to essentially an elimination of all potential competitive mechanisms from the marketplace. And also it's led to a restriction really quite unnecessary on all kinds of innovation in terms of plan design. There, any design feature of an insurance plan, any way of setting co-insurance, any way of setting deductibles, is not going to appeal in exactly the same way to healthy people and sick people. Like healthy people are going to be more attracted to high deductibles, sick people are going to be more attracted to, to case management services. 
But if you're trying to herd everyone into the same kinds of plans, you're going to basically have to make sure everyone gets the exactly same kind of health insurance and prohibit any kind of variation and hence any kind of competition in the market in the long run. It's an inherently stable and dysfunctional arrangement. Now, um, I think at the end of the day, what, what's happened is that because we've imposed regulatory tax on people who are relatively healthy to fund people who have pre-existing conditions or people who wait to get sick before they purchase insurance, what you're essentially doing is you're imposing an enormous tax. I mean, think about that premium relative to the, 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 the healthcare expenditures of most healthy individuals. Most individuals are relatively healthy. Um, well, that's just too much for, for most healthy people who also tend to be young and younger people tend to have lower incomes. So even the Affordable Care Act's um, uh, architects had to create enormous exemptions to this arrangement because they admitted that it was grotesquely unfair. So they exempted um, under 26-year-olds from the risk pool. They exempted classes of low-income people from the individual mandate even before it was repealed. Most people who really would have been subject to the mandate were received exemptions to it. Only 5% of the population, people without uh, employer-sponsored insurance, without uh, public access to public entitlements, or without uh, one of these like lucky exemptions, were really forced to be part of this cat-herding financial system, this regulatory system. And obviously, the more exemptions that you give from this regulatory taxation, the heavier the tax bears on the few that are left. And so the we, we've had this sort of inherent um, inherent like spiraling upwards of costs and, and unpleasantness of the exchange for anyone who's forced to be on it. That, that's not a great way to run a market and it's really not a way that you really ought to expect a good market to work. N nor is it any, any way essential or necessary to the Affordable Care Act's goals. Um, the subsidies to the exchange exist to guarantee plans and, and make financially solvent plans um, and profitable plans that and they expand uh, to the extent necessary to do so to, to guarantee coverage to individuals with pre-existing conditions and they they cap the premiums and out-of-pocket costs that these individuals face so to the extent that the risk pool on the exchange gets worse to the extent that the, the uh, exchange is left with sicker people the subsidies automatically expand this it, it expands completely to the for people who are under 400 percent of the poverty level but also by expanding uh, enormously for people who are under 400% of the poverty level, the influx of subsidies also has two benefits. Firstly, it helps to reduce the, the premiums for people who are above 400% of the poverty level indirectly, because um, as, as the proportion of people on the exchange who are subsidized is larger, it means that the proportion of people who are low risk and subsidized are going to be substantial, which is going to hold down premiums. And secondly, as the proportion of people on the exchange who are subsidized um, are, are, it, it grows larger, that means that the sort of instability arising from herding people into plans that are a terrible value for them, that instability goes away. A relatively high risk pool of uh, subsidized people is actually a fairly stable risk pool. And so by, by narrowing the exchanges down to the people that really need subsidies, we're inherently Im improving the, um, the stability of the exchange and concentrating these subsidies on the people who actually do need them. That being the case, let people who have modest health care needs, modest health insurance needs, purchase insurance at a price that's in proportion to the needs and insurance and financial risks that they're exposed to. This is what the short-term market offers. Um, there is a sense in which um, 
the short-term market, especially after this rule, restores what the Affordable Care Act had, well, what, what, what he, restores the ability of people to purchase the plans they had prior to the Affordable Care Act. President Obama promised 37 times, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Well, this actually gives people uh, uh, an opportunity to go back and get those plans that they liked. These plans that were half the price of the plans that they're, they were forced to subsequently buy on the exchange. And there's a sense in which it does allow people to, if they like their pre-Obamacare plans, to keep them. But there's also the sense in which if you like your Obamacare after this regulatory change, you can keep that too. There is, I think there's been a lot of scaremongering about the extent to which these plans are incompatible with the exchange and with, and with the protections that the Affordable Care Act uh, provides. And I think there's a real sense in which they ought to be seen as complementary. Um, different people have different health care needs. People with major chronic conditions are not going to want the same health care plans that people who are young and healthy and who really can take more risks financially have fairly low risk of chronic illness can take. And so if you're hitting your deductible, if you have, say, diabetes and heart disease, you're going to be hitting your deductible every single year, pretty much for maybe the rest of your life, probably. If you're young and healthy, a deductible is almost like a... It's almost like a theoretical concept. It's like you, I mean, you might have one bad year, you, you have a terrible sports accident or you like have some, you, you contract some communicable disease, but your, your chance of, of having congestive heart failure or no congestive heart failure at 24, but at 25 you have congestive heart failure for the rest of life, that's pretty unlikely. What we actually have is a natural segmentation in the health insurance market, and I think it's fair, and I think it's reasonable that after the deregulations of these plans that we acknowledge that. Um, the, uh, I think the, the statistics of, of the, the impact that it's going to have are really quite extraordinary. This, if you were judging by the news coverage on this, you would think, oh, well, the main impact of this is going to be it's going to send premiums spiraling on the exchange. If you actually look at what the Congressional Budget Office says about this, it says premiums on the exchange... For unsubsidized people, that means only higher income people might increase from two to three percent. So over the past, past five years, without this rule, we've seen premiums go up by 105 percent. This rule, which allows people to access plans that are 50 to 80 percent cheaper, that's an enormous benefit. It might have an incidental cost of two to three percent on upper income people who Waiter who, who didn't purchase health insurance before they got sick, that's a pretty reasonable trade-off, and especially given the fact that there are so many people without insurance who've been sitting on the sidelines. I think most of the studies kind of cluster around 2 million, the notion that might sign up. Um, those are real huge benefits with n not really that big costs associated with this. This is really quite a reasonable policy for people to support. Um, now, I, I think there has been a lot of, I think Michael touched on this, there's been a lot of misleading talk about these being junk insurance plans. Um, they're fairly priced insurance plans. That's the key thing. If you want a generous plan through uh, this short-term market, you can purchase one. And, and I went on the United Healthcare website, and you can easily do this in about 20 seconds at uh1.com. Oops. Um, and... Um, and so I looked at what premiums are, um, and so uh, you can you can purchase um, with essentially an equivalent provider network to a similar plan with a similar out-of-pocket cost exposure to the exchange. Um, so a, a silver plan on the exchange in Virginia, I looked up, 
um, with about 70% actuary value, so it covers 70% of your costs, the rest is out of pocket, is $537 a month with a $4,000 deductible. Now, a short-term plan with a $2,500 deductible, so actually a much lower deductible, um, and 20% coinsurance, so lower coinsurance exposure as well, is $105 a month. So that's a more generous cost sharing and a premium that is about 20% of, of what it would be through the exchange. This was for a 40-year-old non-smoker. Um, now, obviously not everybody is a 40-year-old non-smoker, but there are a lot of 40-year-old non-smokers out there. And if, you can, um, and if you can allow them to save this enormous amount of money and allow them to choose how much out-of-pocket cost exposure they want to bear, um, it seems like a fairly reasonable thing to, to do so. Um, it seems like a great achievement if we allow them to do so through this market, and I'm glad the administration has done so. Um, there's been a lot of scaremongering about junk insurance. I don't think anyone's actually made the claim or really advanced any evidence to demonstrate that banning these plans creates a more equitable distribution of healthcare costs. Like, by herding people into vastly overpriced plans, that it, once you actually sort of think about distributional equity, that this is an improvement for any substantial block of society, especially the most deserving blocks of society, I, I've never actually even seen anyone try to make that argument. Um, instead, we, we've had a lot of disingenuous claims. Um, we've had people who accuse these plans of being junk insurance who are also opposing the rule to add consumer protections to them. We've seen people who've been complaining about the administrative costs in this market, and, and obviously if you have a three-month enrollment maximum, like you've got to be underwritten, your risk's got to be assessed, your, 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 claim, your, your initial sign-up's got to be processed. These are overhead costs. These are like one-time costs. Well, if you, do, if you have to do it every three months, obviously this builds up. But if you extend it over a year, then these administrative costs are essentially spread out. Well, we've, we've seen people say, oh, well, the administrative costs in this market are terrible. Well, that's because you won't allow the, these administrative costs to be spread back the way that they were. And if you actually sort of, and I think Michael made this point very well, um, if you actually sort of look at the, the correct comparison, the Pre-Affordable Care Act um, individual markets, which is essentially a regulatory setup similar to the one that we're going to see in this market pretty soon, well, the administrative costs in that and the medical loss ratios were really not that different to the ones in the Affordable Care Act. We, we had like 80% medical loss ratios uh, uh, according to GAO and on the, on the individual market for the Affordable Care Act. And the difference between that and where we are now, that's in some ways due to carriers making enormous losses, which means loss ratios over 100%. And also it has something to do with the fact that they're rewarded for hitting the target right, and, and sort of passing administrative costs back down to hospitals so that they don't count. Like it's it's not really had any great impact in that. Um, so, so why do we have the, the, this great desire to, to protect this market? Well, I, I, think, I think it really was to do with hiding the cost of the legislation. Because if you can... If you can get people to overpay in premiums, then in 2009, 2010, when the legislation was being scored by CBO, the more the, the premiums are inflated, the less the budgetary score is. And there was certainly a, a commitment to keep the budgetary score under a symbolic trillion dollars. So I think that really initially getting the legislation passed was important. But now that the legislation's passed, like that's actually not that important. You want to be honest and equitable in how you're distributing the tax and not create a dysfunctional market. Um, 
So I, I think where, where do we where where do we stand now? Um, I, I think we're, we're kind of at the point with where states are really going to be asked to regulate this market, um, and I think states really should accommodate this market. I, I live in New York, and New York bans it all together. It, that's like why? Like that's like are you trying to inflate people's costs? Are you trying to like? have people who just lost their job be unable to get an affordable plan to replace the coverage that they've been kicked out of. Um, it's just cruel. Um, and, and it's just, it's unnecessary. Um, the point of insurance regulation is to protect consumers, not to tax them, not to tax them. Um, we were not trying to herd cat, cats into inflated, uh, into sort of hiding the cost of a system. We want to protect consumers and have a market where insurers are selling to consumers a product that consumers want to buy and where you can have competition, where insurers compete to provide a better product. That is, that's what a well-functioning market looks like. Um, regulators, I think, would be well-placed to, to, to actually, look, there are going to be junk plans out there and they should do an earnest, um, they, they should make an earnest effort to, 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 to make sure that they, they they can't be sold and like misleading coverage should not be allowed and fraudulent coverage should not be allowed. And obviously uh, coverage where uh, the plan doesn't have like adequate, adequate financial resources to pay out claims. Obviously these are important functions for state regulators. The function of regulator is not to raise funds for like a whole system of, of cross subsidies. So, I mean, like where does this go now? Well, I think this market is off the ground. Um, people are going to be enrolled in these plans, and it's going to be very hard for Congress to take away from them. Um, there are going to be valued plans for people. Um, and going into this November's election, I think members of both parties are going to have a pretty, a pretty straightforward question to ask. Like, there are affordable insurance plans out there. Do you want to ban them, or do you want to support them? Thank you both for your uh, presentations. It is 1 p.m. and we want to be respectful of your time, so I think our two speakers would be willing to stick around afterwards, but uh, please, uh, let's give them one last round of applause. <laughs>